0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sackness. i Chris, how are you doing this evening?
1: David, I'm well, thank you. I'm well primarily because I'm really excited about the music I've been making of late. I think I've really broken through new ground, and it's in a weird genre. It's sort of Brian Eno meets Harry Parch, as in improvised, self-made instruments, both synthesizer, uh, but not MIDI related and, you know, real acoustic things. But I find it's helping me with my visual art. It's bringing some of those things together, but it's a very effective discipline for helping me focus a lot of exciting, but uh, sparkle off the wheel, randomized thinking for the memory and alertness book. And I I encourage writers who have any ability to uh, access some of the helpful spiritual direction of music in any form, you know, Um, I think it helps build sentence structure. You know, I Mm -hmm. really do. Um, And out of the music comes, I think, another level of meaning and it really helps with the architecture. In a sense, it, it's kind of diction building syntax rather than a top-down approach. So that's my groove. And I, I really am digging it because I think without the music channels, uh, there'd be a lot of depression because this is a difficult fall for teaching. Um there's some good results, but it's I'm working hard at that. So I'm getting a lot back from the music as a creative direction tool. It sort of fits into everything that we're doing in the show, and it's it's my side of the imaginative challenges that you know are part of it. So that's my group. What's up with you?
0: Well, had parent teacher conferences and uh Ooh. One one parent showed up in the three hours that I had to be there. Um, teaching is going well. They asked me to begin an after school writing club, oh, cool. uh, which is some extra money. So I'll be doing that three days a week for $30 an hour extra 200 bucks in my pocket.
1: Well, good that you're getting paid. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's a lot of extra work. Good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'll be doing that. And the writing club is where we get to get really Chris Sacknessum with it. I'm going to bust out the blindfolds. Yeah. We're going to be writing with our non-dominant hands. We're going to be listening to ambient Chris Sacknessum tracks in the library while we, while we write yes Um, we're gonna be following following the path of the spider etc um so i'm looking forward to that because you know in my english three which i teach most of the day they give us a lot of leeway but it's it's still a program i can't necessarily teach what i'm completely interested in Mm -hmm. you'll know you know this because you've been teaching for as long as you have you have to find your way in to a lot of it and, and find out how it's interesting to you so that you can perform the way that you need to perform. But with the writing club, I have carte blanche to do whatever I want. So um, that'll get interesting. I think.
1: I think you definitely will see if you can talk the, uh, the school or the district into buying some textbooks. I will.
0: I will. They've got a, they They've got a big budget. You know, I wish I had thought about that when the librarian approached me because uh, we have an abnormally large budget for book buying this year. And, oh,
1: well, please uh, reach out. I mean, Rutledge will help with a deal and the, and, and the school and the district will know how to, you know, app, you know, leverage those deals. So that would be good. And that would really reinforce, you know, what you're trying to do with the people face to face.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i will do that um other than that strange weather lots of rain uh flooding uh, moving house finished a a novel about a week ago so Mm -hmm. start started up on another one um i'm not releasing them until i have a bit of a strategy because another thing that you'll be familiar with is uh you know, you can only release a book into the ether and have it not perform the way you want it to so many times before you think, okay, I need some kind of plan going into this. You know, I've ju- I've dove into it headfirst <clears throat> a dozen times now, and um, you know, with my writing process the way it is now, I it's very uh, disciplined and regimented, and. Because of that, the books that I write appear at a slower pace, but s- slower, but faster because slow is fast and fast is smooth, or slow is smooth and smooth is fast. That's what the Marines say, right? right. Um, but for a book that I spent as much time writing as I did, because I tend, I, before this, I used to write in bursts. And this one was much more of a sustained, discipline and i'm really proud of it and uh yeah i don't just want to release it it's very strange you know
1: i i i hear you i've never actually done that you know and um Mm -hmm. i'm now contemplating you know what what there is a title that i've got fully completed that i'm still working out the best way to approach that but i think that everything is so higgledy piggledy these days and I don't know if the publishing industry is ever going to, um, stabilize and, in return to any kind of form that, it, you know, that, that I recognize. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, yeah, it is about strategy. I think it's about, uh, understanding what the current landscape is, which seems very difficult to do, um and using whatever platforms that you can leverage and, and building on what, you know, all the things that you've learned. Uh-huh. Uh, I think you're in a great position to know what the options are, um, whatever they are. So I'm sure you'll make a good decision. And I look to you for advice on this. Um, uh, the lost explorers handbook, which is different than our psychic defense manual. Um I'm still contemplating what what to do with that. It's kind of overwhelming yeah. me.
0: Yeah, well, it's a part of me wants to finish another novel so that I can have 3 and it be a series because people mm-hmm. like series and something that I've noticed and I've I've seen this confirmed, this suspicion confirmed in um self-publishing blogs is that, you know, there's nothing wrong from a sales standpoint of releasing three books at the same time uh because people love series so this is the second book and i think that perhaps i might go ahead and do a third and release them that way so that you know you can do deals with them you can at that point you can make the first one free because it's seen by the customer as less of a devaluing of the product and more of a a sales pitch for the other two books. Um, So I'm kicking around a lot of options. Uh, A part of me wanted to go ahead and put it out over fall break, which would already be next week, only a few days from now. And while I could do that, no problem, um, because I've already designed it and, you know, edited it and it's, you know, it's good to go. I'm just not sure. The, you you mentioned the lost explorers handbook, and it's been the same thing for me, uh, with that one where, you know, I, at a certain point, I'm going to have to start experimenting, which means I'm going to have to start, you know, putting these out. But, uh, another part of me, you know, it's it, it just once bit twice shy. I mean, I've been about 10 times bit with doing books this way. And, um, I just want to make sure that I'm not condemning our books, my books, your books, to just float off into the ether because they're too good. They're too good to just disappear, you know? And um, another part of me thinks it might just be worth putting the books out and, you know, doing a slow burn. But then you get into this trap of you know only having 20 amazon reviews and people not purchasing the title because they there's no social proof for it they think well if there's only 20 reviews then nobody's buying it there must be something wrong with it so i don't know maybe we'll uh have to organize something with the community the listeners and and see if we can't get them to uh to all buy it at once and review it at once because a couple hundred reviews for a new book is, is crucial. And I'm beginning to think that's the, that's the number one sales tactic for, for independently published books.
1: Well, yeah. And I just, I don't know what to think about it all. It it just seems, um, it seems disheartening to start with, uh, but I, I see a lot of these services, uh, one of them um, I've seen on Twitter, that, you know, for a pretty modest fee, well, you know, you don't know what you're actually going to get for it, but say it's 200 bucks, they guarantee these Amazon reviews and, you know, read. Goodread- and I just think, I, I don't know how that works. All of this kind of... Um, Well, I guess my focus is really on the product, you know, and really on the thinking. And Mm -hmm. I think that this is where uh, what I enjoy about our show so much is I think that we are on top of that. And that's where the action is. And that's where the action really needs to be. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I think we got to stick with that. And, um, you know people will find things if, if the quality is there. I really believe that. I don't think enough people will ever, but on the other hand, I've been, I've been doing a lot of thinking about what mass popularity means. And I don't think it's a good thing. I really don't. I don't
0: either. No, I agree with you. I agree that I, I, I don't think it's a good thing, but for the lost explorers handbook say i would like to sell ten thousand copies of it Well, right? one, so, okay.
1: one confusion point is the lost i'm using that as the title for um a book that's separate from the psychic defense manual
0: oh psychic defense i i conflate those two all the time yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So well maybe that's, that's I mean. an
1: issue we should think about you know because I thought that was a good thing in one sense, but because they, they, but they're related, but they're very, very different. So, um, but I think it'll, it'll sort itself out and it will be just, we'll build on the strength of the show and the listening community. I know Mm -hmm. I have faith. I have faith in them. And to go back to the music, I, I, It's just one comment on YouTube, but it's an extended comment. And it's an enormously insightful comment. It's like some of our listeners. And I think to myself, you know, the degree of articulation and subtlety of mind uh, in that comment just is worth so much. Relative to, oh, you know, a really just superficial, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think that that was a reminder of of where <laughs> the focus is and where the real return is, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Almost. So deep. Do you have a band and an aphorism for us today? I
1: do, I do, and I, I think that you will be able to uh, infer, ascertain, and conclude that when I uh, developed the band idea this was um, I needed to make some more music myself because I was obviously a little bit depressed. But their name is posthumous which all of Gen Z has to go look up because they have no idea. But this is um, kind of a cadaverous version of my morning jacket. Uh, They're a strangely sensuous but austere Appalachian-based band obsessed with dead celebrities and people who were obscure in their lifetimes, but became famous after death. They're also radical activists for euthanasia or assisted suicide. Mm -hmm. And to add a little bit of an edge, they support the rights of parents to abort their children at any age. Okay. And their album is titled Not Quite Dead. And some of the tracks are Civilization as Autopsy, It's a Found Object Day, Grave to Cradle, and The Last End User. So
0: civilization as autopsy is the title of the best death metal record of the year that nobody's heard I think I think that would just fit so well for that kind of music and I can even yeah. see the cover I can see posthumous but the, in, in my conception they're doing it in that scraggly death metal font you know the kind that I mean
1: I do know what you mean.
0: And the and and very and, t-shirty. Yeah. 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 And I know this isn't the title of the album, but Civilization as autopsy with like uh, you know, an alien pulling the guts out of a screaming person Mars Attack style, I think would look really cool.
1: Well, I think that was on my I'm going to an event out at the Speedway here, which mm-hmm. is in you mm-hmm. know, the barren uh north. And you know, they have weird music festivals out there because it's kind of a way that you know it's away from the city. And if if you know things break out, it's a little bit more manageable. But there's an event coming up with some heavy metal and therefore probably death metal people, some rogue EDM people, and sort of kind of neo-serious people in my category. And I'm looking forward to I think it could be a weird. Uh, meeting ground
0: yeah i love the idea of a musical genre called neo-serious <laughs> <laughs> there we go what uh, kind of music does chris sagnison make neo-serious
1: yeah yeah and that's cool Okay, okay, good, good. I'm glad you're digging it. Well, here's my aphorism, and I think this is uh, on track for where we're heading uh, with the rest of the show. Uh, It's a simple phrase, but I've got a little bit more support for it. But the aphorism is, be wary of what you need to believe in. What got me thinking about this is beliefs seem to take on a life of their own, seeking out converts and adherents. Isn't it odd that all of these things, concepts, ideas, and ideologies, programs, values, etc., seem to exert an ownership relationship to us? And I think that is really something that needs to be thought of because we're often, you know, looking for identity reinforcement. And, you know, everyone who reaches adulthood deserves the right to experience, uh, well, penetration or domination in some way, if if they choose to do so. You know, it's got to be... Uh, consensual, you know, whether that's regular or as an experiment. As Bob Dylan said, you've got to serve somebody. And you and I have talked about that idea of devotion and and servitude in a positive sense of, of doing service rather than being sort of a slave, but yielding to higher powers. But I think we really have to stay alert to how we do that. Be wary of what you need to believe
0: in. That's my. That's great. Week. No, I think I think that's perfect. I think that that I could crochet that and sell that. That'd and nice. That would be that would be a good
1: way I to present do. it. That's a good medium.
0: Yeah, in yeah. a crochet with a little cow and a barn. You know, be wary of what you need to believe in.
1: Yeah.
0: What is my imaginative challenge for today?
1: Okay, okay. This is detailed, and I make no apology for it, but we are into deep uh, scenario uh, planning problem-solving mode. The working title here is The Blossoming, or The Lucid Station. Okay. Okay. We're in the midst of what is arguably an immigration nightmare on America's southern border. And right at this peak moment of crisis, extraterrestrial aliens do arrive at last. They're not locust-like invaders, at least not apparently, no warlike colonists seeking, dom- you know, dominion or, you know, domination over us. They're intellectual, enlightened rationalists with an apparently cosmic embrace, expanded mind. Their goal, or so it seems, is to help humanity realize its greatest potential, to survive and thrive, to blossom. Now, to further this end, they commandeer electronic mainstream communication channels worldwide, and begin 24-7 broadcasting a curious, hypnotic kind of trance music, which is so subtle many people don't notice or fully realize what's happening. The effects are calming, focusing, and intellectually activating. It would seem a good thing all around, but not everyone agrees. They may think of, yeah, momentary energized clarity, enhanced reasoning, even improvement of IQs, some say, while the curing or at least the calming of many of the major forms of mental illness. But your predicament in this story is that you are getting very hot sex with an emotionally unstable woman who is one of the rebels, who are not only skeptical of the blossoming, but actively opposed to it. They are new anarchists wanting to destroy the lucid streaming. They believe in noise, mess, and all the human excesses of pop culture, even at its most bred and circusy degeneracy. Their religious position is that these tendencies are essentially human, okay, you're not unaware of the woman's psychological issues, but a part of you feels that she and her co-conspirators have something, have a point, and it's a question now of which side you take. Um, They have some reasonable anxieties. Uh, they, They think, some of the more extreme members of her group think that This so-called blossoming may mask a darker agenda that is yet to unfold. Or, more simply, what if it's all just a phase, like the age of Aquarius, before Manson, Nike, Microsoft, and Apple sort of took over? What happens if the aliens take their blossoming, lucid technology away? So you need to make a stand and make a choice uh it's could be a love story choice it could be a, a bigger Manichaean battlefield strategy it could be both but i thought that might sort of groove with your sort of cyberpunk phase
0: yeah no i dig it i dig it i also i also dig the the jordan b peterson uh aspect of casting the woman as chaos I, uh, yeah. well, I should, or Cambellian, I guess you could say, via Jordan Peterson. Cool. No, that sounds good to me. So you sent me a lot of ideas for things to talk about. <clears throat> would you like me to read them or would you like to just start talking about them? I want to go with your instinct. I always like what you, okay. you riff on things and put things into shape. Okay, in that case, we're going to go with number two first. Memory as species of hallucination. I don't see how this position can be entirely dismissed or circumvented. Memory as species of hallucination. Most people would hear that, and I believe that there would be a bit of confusion between hallucination as something that is happening out side of yourself something that you are seeing and memory as something internal what would you say to that
1: well i think the problem is exactly that it it really is the the prepositional distance of where is this obviously permeable membrane about inside and outside um i think this is exactly the, the problem uh we, we have a much easier time, I think, talking about the distinction between dreaming, that state of consciousness, and waking consciousness. But when it comes to memory and hallucination, I just, things start to blur. The membrane becomes so permeable, and I'm not sure I really understand the inside and outside there. I think that the most I would say there is that uh, that might be a convention of language. That is really the first casualty of any deeper level of thought at all. Um, When you start really thinking about the nature of of memories, of how those work, to what extent they work. Um, Mm -hmm. It it seems very, well, to me, it meets every criteria uh, that I can think of that applies to hallucination.
0: I wonder when I access memories, it is interesting because if I'm having a conversation the way that I'm having a conversation now and I access a memory, it does feel like I'm reaching back into something, into a pit or a hole. Okay. And when I have hallucinated, I tend to see them outward. However, here's the tricky thing. If you focus on a memory long enough, it becomes outer- And if you've ever been on an acid trip and you close your eyes and really experience the hallucination, it begins to go to the same place as memory. So maybe that, you know, chemical hallucinogenic bridge is doing what you're saying there and breaking down that prepositional distance and showing them that this space that we're experiencing in terms of hallucination V uh, memory is just that. It's an illusion. Well,
1: I would go a bit further and just query uh, that very interesting verb you used of access, which Mm -hmm. is, I think, linguistically built into all our thinking about memory as a capacity. And it ends up being related to storage and to uh, you know you're accessing your storage shed of memories, right? I mean that's kind of the framework there, and the one of the core propositions I'm putting forward in the book in progress and in just all my thinking about memory now is to really step aside from that capacity notion because you end up instantly in the humuncul- homunculus problem or who is uh, who's minding the store i mean if if it's you accessing memories uh i would suggest that's a strange way of thinking of yourself because i think you are memories i i wonder if it isn't better thought of in inverted terms of memories are accessing you because mm. why why though why any one memory any you know it if you think of it as um well, let's think of it more in not so much an attic or a storage facility. Let's think of it as a tide pool for a moment, a little bit more organic and rhythmic. Why do certain things enter the tide pool at you know any one time? Um, if the moment we start to try to target those and to pull them apart and to look at the deep associative patterns that underlie them, the the lower levels of of chaos code that seem to be there, we start to think, well, maybe the illusion is our integrated identity, our sense of self, which is imposed on us, I, I would suggest, from the inherent structure of language, from the ghost radio signal of culture. That's what we've been talking about really from the very early episodes but it's also bridged by um, social responsibility. And there's a lot that's holding us to that notion of self. We get a lot of reward from the world uh, beyond just survival in kind of playing along with that. But I think the moment we break out of that uh, larger hallucination, and give our own private hallucinations a chance to unfold in a ceremonial dreamlike way, we start to see other, other patterns. I believe that, that if we really went deep into that, through psychotherapy, hypnosis, hallucinogenic drugs, and a more ceremonial approach to vision experiences as other cultures have, I think we would find an integrated sense of self still but i think it would be very different than what we accept and think we're dealing with every day in america you know
0: let's look i think that's great let's look at i wonder if an analogy for what lies between the private consciousness structuring agencies we presented as the memory palace listeners will remember that from the past few episodes and the swamp the wilderness of all things someone doesn't know, can be found in the tent cities and homeless camps we see today in almost every American metropolis. Now, are they... I (laughs) Whenever you pass a homeless encampment and you see the piles and piles of junk that they've accumulated, that does seem to be a middle point, doesn't it? Of a kind of memory palace. You know, what are all these... Empty gym Beam bottles and, uh, you know, just the stuff that they carry around, but some kind of memory palace. What about hoarders as having a memory palace? What if a hoarder, it doesn't just have a, a fully integrated swamp and, and palace.
1: I think it's certainly, uh, and, and my experience of, of hoarders is, uh, that there's quite an interesting spectrum there from, you know, the completely insane uh, things that are often found, you know, when, when someone dies, you know, um, I've known a couple of, of people who found out that, you know, aging folks in their buildings, say in New York city, you know, just had this amazing uh, either profound schizophrenic thing going on or almost a form of outsider art to go back to uh you know some of our really early episodes when we were exploring that weird boundary land between madness and and a real visionary shamanic sense of you know ceremonial art i think all of those things are relevant ways of seeing the collapse In the structures of of memory palaces, which we've talked about in terms of a kind of focused architectural way of managing day-to-day consciousness, and the swamp, the wilderness of all the things that we don't know, that's a kind of assigned giant vague category of all the things that we can't process into memory palace structural form. And there's an oscillation between those two states of consciousness, those two tendencies. And there is a middle ground for all of us, which is perhaps kind of uncomfortable and and strange, and both a mixture of memory palace decaying and swamp trying to find some form, trying to find some... Shelter, or, you know, an earlier uh, opposition that we were looking at is the horizon versus home port,
0: and mm-hmm. how two mm-hmm. can
1: be one. And there are, I mean, if you, if you just thought about the idea of tent cities back in a more depression era sort of way, when they first began to be talked about again as a term, there was a possibility, I think, that maybe people were, you know, doing some beautiful improvisation in the world and that new kinds of community were forming. I mean, you think of Burning Man, that's a temporary sort of tent city, and no one thinks that that's dysfunctional. It's, in fact, uh, the the opposite. It's, it's affluent, you know, it's people with money creating this, you know, quite interesting uh visually interesting anyway, community for a short period of time. We tend not to think like that when we look at Portland and Seattle and San Francisco and LA and New York and now the tent cities of today just look really uh well I think tragic is is one way mm-hmm. to think but um I'm sure that's not the only case but if, from what I don't know I I think it is but to me it looks like memory palaces decaying eroding under stress and becoming more swamp like but not in any kind of managed way which we're suggesting in the metaphor of the swamp is kind of well managed and and curated and or stewarded
0: you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm so it's yeah it's that difference between the chaos and the stewardship basically right there has to be some kind of um some kind of uh attempt to engage with and put into order those kinds of things i i also feel really depressed when i look at ten cities now and you know you have to just assume that it's the uh all the fentanyl it's now, the drugs. It's the drugs. Yeah. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, You have rethinking. I'm so interested in this one. Rethinking Heiser's city as an inverse memory palace. This makes sense to me intuitively in the fact that it is so desolate and uninviting and also so big and smooth. Uh, because you tend to think of memory palaces as having lots of rooms and alcoves and and places to kind of store the memories. But I I, I love this idea of this being a kind of impression of a memory palace on reality, which can only be it's inverse. Uh, Please elaborate on this one. Well, you know, I, I, I
1: certainly don't know. Um, Heiser is notoriously, um, not interview friendly and so he hasn't given us a lot of his own thinking to work with and although I I think he is a very um, intelligent and well thought out artist I really do believe that Uh, he likes over the course to of his career to sort of present more as a kind of a roadworks guy you know working heavy machinery and and sort of above a lot of the aesthetic philosophical issues that his work quite clearly raises. But I was thinking about my experience going to visit and the strange uh, blankness of the monolith aspect of of the city. Um, Because a lot of it is just these curves, these very smooth, strangely organic Uh, attention refocusing but also attention dissipating uh, pathways or they're not I mean they're certainly big enough to get vehicles on and obviously they were made by uh, earth moving equipment but a lot of the experience of wandering the city over the three hours that you're given to do that and again for people who don't there's a limited access of six people at any given time. This is all administered by the foundation that represents him. And then we'll look after the city theoretically um, into perpetuity. Um, But there are some centerpiece uh, structures that are very minimalist geometric. Um, They don't really bring to mind any one, you know, resonant civilization from the past. You maybe will get a flash of, you know, the Aztec, great Aztec ruins in Mexico, not so much the Mayan in the Yucatan, maybe, but not, I didn't get any feeling of the great Mediterranean sort of ruin. Mm-hmm. I really thought this was a dreamlike meditation on civic sized structures that seemed to displace me and all of my social memory palace structuring, how I make sense of, you know, being in a city normally. And so there is a kind of weird inversion happening. Um, what I found is it's an, it's an, it's a dynamic process. It's not, you can't look at it as an artifact that is the inversion of a memory palace, the way I phrased it. It's more like a process where as you're walking around, you're confronted with the conflict of your memory palace structuring of mind is activated, but completely destabilized. And you're not left with a swamp. There's your, it's, it's, it can't be considered sterile because of the larger environment of the valley. It's too much nature out around, visible. And there's no trash. It's pristine. And there's no, you can't really leave footprints and you're disinclined obviously to litter in any way yourself. So it's this weird thing of, not knowing where you are and where to go, because the memory palace tendency has been completely inverted and the swamp is just not, well, it's, it's a cloud. It's more of a cloud, a transparent cloud rather than any kind of dimensionalized swamp as we've been talking
0: about. And what does that do being around those structures? What does that do to the memory palace? You were mentioning That you, when you are accessing a memory palace, there's an implication there of there needing to be some kind of recognizable structure in so-called outward 3D reality to relate to. So does the strangeness and alienness of Heiser structures, did it affect your memory in any way? Like misremembered things or a, a kind of blankness maybe?
1: I think it's had a very profound delay action response in the music I'm making and my notions of musical structure and my Mm new interest in, say, North African trance music and the Sufi tradition of the dervishes and some North Indian classical forms and Gamelin, you know? So all of those are very uh, musically, they're, they're simple, but also esoteric and a fundamental mystical attempt to get a hold of, to kind of give the cloud or the mist some sort of featuring. So it's searching for memory palace structuring tools, but from very much the swamp angle, and it's going in that direction. And I don't think Heiser City as a an artifact of, of mind and dream allows you to fulfill that. I think it turns you back towards the swamp, back towards categories that you, you don't fully know and you haven't investigated. And so you're going to look for rooms that aren't there you know you're 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 really i was i kept thinking uh you know there should be a door here and well not only is there not a door there's not a wall there there's mm-hmm. you know all of those mm-hmm. categories start falling apart and it it kind of it it made me think that the the memory hallucination uh, duality is on track that somehow mm-hmm. Those are are ways that need to be thought of as an interdependent relationship, an oscillation.
0: An interesting exercise, because as you're talking and describing the feelings that you're getting from Heiser's City, it's reminding me of the way that I feel every time I look at pictures of the throne of the third heaven. Mm -hmm. Um, An interesting exercise might be to meditate on photographs or if you can make it if you're lucky enough to make it to go there and to specifically attempt memory deep dives maybe with a pen and a paper too and just to see what comes out that would be really cool. You can do it at home with uh with pictures of you the structures.
1: Can. I think any experimentation on that level would be very, very helpful. And I think it is interesting to mention the throne of the third heaven which is just such a beautiful private hermetic uh religious creation even it's certainly on a different scale obviously than heiser city and scale becomes a very important issue here Mm -hmm. Um, that that is a key distinguishing uh feature between the memory palace and the swamp one is something that can contain the individual one is something that the individual gets lost in and or doesn't go in at all it kind of just stewards it by at the border at the perimeter Mm -hmm. Uh, but one question to tie back to the tent cities and the drug and mental health crisis that defines the homeless encampments of today i haven't heard seen encountered any reference to a kind of outsider artist approach emerging from those communities, whether yeah. it's in Philadelphia or San Fran or Oakland or Portland or in all the cities kind of known for it now. But it's really everywhere. You know, I can't I can't think I think every the top 20 major cities all have a fairly significant problem. And many if not all of the second tier cities so where is that outsider art instinct going well it may not be there at all because the problem is too much mental illness too much fentanyl you know
0: yeah i think it might be as simple as that and i think that um you know alienation is a key factor of the outsider artist this is something so far beyond alienation. It's closer to just obliteration. I don't think that you can access the parts of you that you need to access if you are high on fentanyl. And I think that that is intentional. I think that's built into the drug. I think that intense opiate opiate derived pharmaceuticals are specifically, um, there to kind of numb that. I mean, we've had a lot of great artists who were addicted to opium, sure. But uh, fewer, I think, who are into Xanax, pain pills, uh, fentanyl being the, you know, the uber form of that kind of thing. So I think that it just blocks it. So I think that what you get is all the bad with none of the the good, if you want to look at it that way um which is really sad to see i've noticed that as well i was kind of thinking about gentrification and how it works and you know you get enough people who move into an area for cheap rent and because of their limitations they create a very specific art style that then makes that neighborhood appealing and people move into it rent goes up it's a cycle that's been repeated throughout most of my life and for the first time uh, in July, uh, rent prices actually began to fall by 03 mm. percent. So not significantly, but it's a trend, right? And I wonder if you can't trace it back to all of that to um, this gentrification cycle. You know, perhaps being having burned itself out through you know just too much building, too much gentrification, but a part of it certainly has to be the fact that, you know, these 10 cities and these ugly blue tarps with tons of, you know, empty monster energy drink cans and needles and things like that.
1: Always those monster cans. You're right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're always there. That's like the, (laughs) if you need something to get you through, that's, that's speedy and makes you feel weird. Monster is the legal way to do that. Um, but you do so without any kind of any kind of art to speak of who's making, who's even, I don't know if I'm out of it or not, but you know, I I have friends who are very much into art and outsider art. And I I follow what they post on places like Instagram very closely. And they're always posting people from the, the late 19th century up till about the sixties or seventies, maybe eighties at the most. And then it, it, begins to drop off well this is kind of my
1: point i'm glad uh, you, you put it so simply that 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 really was my my point really that somehow what really was quite uh i mean for something as divergent as outsider art something so eccentric and idiosyncratic and often involving you know mental health mental illness questions there was such a richness of it all around the world and I don't see that happening at all anymore. I think that we've, we've really lost touch with that. And it's become, you know, quite pathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, it It really, and it's hit some of the cities where you would think that energy would be at its most vivid, you know, and has been in the past. So something's
0: going on. Yeah. I wonder, too, if the advent of social media and hasn't subsumed some of those outsider artist tendencies, I wonder if some of these people haven't become insane social media posters, just unhinged people who hate Joe Biden or Donald Trump and who now have a kind of outlet for that. Whereas in the past, they wouldn't have had a prism to laser focus that energy on because a lot of these people are unhinged you hear that term used all the time like oh these people who you know really hate joe biden they're they're completely unhinged maybe and what if they didn't have that outlet you know what if all they had was a tv and then their shed to go express themselves maybe that's a part of it too fentanyl on social media equals no good art
1: Well, I certainly think that can't be dismissed. I I really, I I think that's, you know, no question. I would add to it. I think that we have gotten to, uh, from another angle and and many different factors involved, I I don't think there there are people working with their hands in the same way. I, I think a certain appreciation of skills and strange improvisational characteristics um the scavenging of interesting things i I used to go you know to city dumps and and rural regional ones, and there were a lot of people out harvesting stuff for a lot of different reasons, sometimes crazy, sometimes just looking for you know they were just shopping and they didn't have any money, but there were always people kind of doing what I was doing you know and and looking mm-hmm. for stuff for from, from an art point of view and I think that, uh, I mean, COVID has had a huge impact on that. Uh, A lot of municipal sculptures that we see in the great cities are not created by individuals anymore. They're often uh, created by foundries. And the artist in question really handed somebody a sketch or a model you know, and that's a big issue in the sculpture game of well, yeah, there's somebody's name on that, but did they really make it? Uh, I have a friend in Australia who's done executed something like about 65 major commissions for artists and has gotten no credit whatsoever. But he's the one who knows how to work with, you know, hot metal and and Mm -hmm. and. to Mm. create shapes. He's the real artist in my view. The other people are kind of, you know, it should at least be considered a teen sort of thing. But the the homeless encampments really do reflect something, a deep degeneration of a balance between memory palace thinking in our frame of reference. And if people are new to the show uh, are confused by that, we have been looking at that over a, a few episodes. But the swamp as in the category of all the things that, that one doesn't know as an individual and how you, how you deal with things you don't know, how, how you manage your own ignorance to some extent. Uh, one, you could look at the memory palace as the structuring of knowledge. The swamp, in our terms, is the structuring of ignorance. How we give ourselves permission to not engage with certain subjects, with not without really, you know, from concepts like infinity, which really don't mean anything to to us, really, um, perhaps unless we're in a deeply hallucinatory state. But we we give ourselves permission. to to not deal with everything because otherwise we just simply couldn't function. But every once in a while, the swamp comes into focus because we something will catch us, We'll, we'll think about something. I think our listeners are a lot more likely to go exploring there more frequently than other people. But what we're seeing in social terms has a lot to do with the fentanyl and social media crisis coming together. And yeah, I think that, that is a pretty powerful convergence of forces.
0: (sighs) True. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, This is from your email. Um, This is quite a big subject that flows directly from the last few episodes. I'm thinking of looking at and then moving beyond the notion of Maya, the world is illusion, and all the mythic and religious ideas of eternity, the afterlife, the world to come, aka the plurality of spirit dimensions, etc., to focus on the counterintuitive in the down-to-earth sense of physics. Going back to the proto-science of the ancient Greeks, more, is that Thales? Uh-huh and later Archimedes rather than the mystic leanings of say Pythagoras and Parmenides or Parmenides, sorry. Uh, In other words, the basic but deeply weird idea that things aren't what they seem to us in very material terms. We either misunderstand various dynamics of Newtonian level reality because of our perceptual limitations and scale, size, lifespan, or we don't fully grasp the mechanics causes involved. The problem becomes all the clearer and stranger when we consider the subatomic level and quantum realities. I think this is it pretty much, right? I think the counterintuitive is it. This is such a great idea because I do think that when uh, the Buddhists talk about not knowing, that's often explained at length as a, as a philosophical position. and a state of being uh, childlike and always having beginner's mind. And all of those things are well and good, but the counterintuitive is saying that there's something that it's not just that you don't know. It's that you're, you're very specifically wrong about or you're misunderstanding. Like you don't actually get it. You have a very convenient fiction that allows you to get through your day-to-day life but it's not it's not right you're misunderstanding so i liked this this one a lot
1: well you've got the key here this this is really and and i i think the distinction you've drawn with you know a buddhist perspective for instance or a zen perspective is exactly right because those are really stepping back into the swamp the, uh, the way of dealing with what we don't know Uh, a way of dealing with our our scale in the universe. And there's a lot of wisdom in that for sure, Um, but it is ultimately a a philosophical religious position. It it can't be said to be first a practical position in the world, uh, whether as a physical isolated individual or a connected social being, it leaves those two, key areas of of life out. It helps you resolve this larger cosmic level, perhaps. Um, But the Greeks really did give us this idea of, and this is where they step away from everybody, including the Egyptians, you know, and a lot of the major people went to study in Alexandria. They really did look at things and say, well, there's a possibility that our perceptual faculties determine what we see. There's that we have to deal with. There's the possibility, very strong possibility, that language itself somehow predetermines and offers another level of limitation beyond just our physical perceptual limitations, what you know spectrum of, of light we can see. That language shapes things it gives us the questions that we're asking so therefore kind of hints at the answers we're going to get but what happens when we could just step away from those frameworks for a little bit and begin to look at some peculiar things like mirages for instance um, very physical things that have explanations, the Doppler effect, which we talked about, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. was one of your uh, uh, basis for an imaginative challenge. These very physical things that are peculiar, that are peculiar for, you know, we we have a, there's a good reason why certain kinds of language have, you know, eerie, peculiar, the uncanny. Well, Mm -hmm. They're kind of out there to be experienced. You know, if you go out and certain, there's a marsh near where I am and you go out at the right time when the mist is rising and the reflections and shadow, I mean, things do seem quite odd and the acoustics change and you think, okay, well, is this, is this all natural? Or is there a kind of supernatural feeling to this that's nonetheless very real and has a physics to it, but it's not in my memory palace. I'm going to have to move out of my memory palace, sort of into the swamp to get a new look at these very physical things that are going on. You know, they're not hallucinations, let's say. We we really we can't treat them as such. We have to engage with them. And only by expanding our physics, our metaphysics into a physics, can we, and that's really the nature of all science. It moved, and it's still pretty metaphysical, really. In our terms, your, your terms and mine, we think it's very metaphysical. It's just a lot of people don't want to acknowledge that. But the idea is to try to expand the memory palace to engage more of the swamp and to get that traverse or journey or oscillation smoother, as you said, you know, smoother is fast, but the main thing is smoother and and to begin to see things in new ways, which is, well, that really, if that's not counterintuitive, what is, If it's intuitive, well, see that raises really the question of what intuition and what instinct really is. And I think those are immensely murky ideas that are often out in the swamp and they become labels in the memory palace. But if you start to look at them,
0: they kind of fall apart in your hands. You know, they're not really viable. Right, right here's what i love about this so on one level you have the zen buddhist uh hindu idea that uh, we can never really know because our perceptions alter the thing that we're perceiving this is true on a quantum level this has been scientifically proven however that's not what we're saying Then you mentioned language, the idea that we can gesticulate at something and come to an approximation of what that thing is, but never quite the thing itself. That's also not what we're talking about. Here's a thought experiment. What if the Hindus and the Buddhists are completely wrong and everything that we are seeing is reality as it is? We are perfect uh, uh, vessels for seeing these things. And also, language somehow is also perfect at describing what we see. What we are saying is that there would still be a platonic counterintuitive at the heart of some things. Right, a counterintuitive that goes beyond language and perception into its nature, the mist rising up from the marsh. Its original Ur form is that of the counterintuitive. It is a the counterintuitive is a solid force with gravity and magnetism in the universe. And it is not a matter. Of our perception. It is a thing in and of itself. What do you think about that?
1: You know, if you just changed your outfit slightly, you could really, you're like a young Athenian who has come back from Alexandria via the island of Samos. Mm -hmm. You know, you took some lessons back out of that absolutely crucial city of magic and proto-science you know and fishing and strange music and headed back to greece the country of many islands and strange sort of warlike uh inheritances of lost gods but via an emergent engineering science island contemplating these lessons and have put this into a focus. And in a way, that's kind of what I think of as an Atlantean state of mind. I think you've just presented an Atlantean perspective. And you know how we were talking in an earlier episode, and you put it so beautifully, about how the individual not only can, but has a kind of social moral responsibility to think civilizationally, to think of, of themselves in civilization terms, as a living dynamic artifact and sigil of of their cultural civilization. I think you've just done that. I think that is a kind of an Atlantean perspective that really draws together an enormous stream of rich ideas and has a very different spin on it than the Buddhist Hindu perspective. We've moved very solidly out of a pure religious philosophical and therefore mystical position, um, towards something else, something that is, uh, and it's kind of the way a lot of our heroes the people like Terence McKenna and Rupert Sheldrake think, I think you've given that some real, uh, some substance in the mist, you know, the mist has some new shape to it. Now. Uh, cool. I love, that thinking i think that needs to be fleshed out and that's the kind of thing where where we could focus really on um you know if, if you said if the topic was what is atlantean thinking what does that mean beyond being a cool buzzword label well that would be the starting point
0: thank you no i'm glad i'm glad you dug that I think that's probably a good place to stop the main conversation for now because we can continue talking about this. But man, what a bunch of cool ideas. We've got the uh Michael Heiser's city as an inverse memory palace. We've got memory as a species of hallucination. We've got the allegory of the tent city and its manifestation in 2023. And we've got the counterintuitive. So those are four ideas. We, so I'm not going to overload. That's a lot.
1: Yeah. No, that is that. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. We've got to a lot, a lot to, to further explore. And, you know, that's always our, our goal is is to keep exploring and we appreciate listeners following us on that. And we're the, the journey is the destination, you know, and yep. we're, and we're making progress on that. Right.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, so the blossoming, what I have for the blossoming here, um, is, okay. So we have, um, immigration nightmare. Oh, I didn't touch on that enough. Shoot. Okay. Well, the aliens show up and they have this broadcast frequency that is so subtle. Many people don't realize it. And my character is, banging it out with this super hot chick. Who's all about chaos. Right. Um, And she, she likes all of it, even the bread and circus aspect of it. So our relationship, as you say, is, is very tumultuous. So this woman uh, will occasionally break things or crash a car and she's moody. She doesn't want to tell me what her mood is. I have to try to figure it out. She's got a tattoo across her chest that says manic pixie dream girl with pixie and dream crossed out. So it just says manic dream, right? And her belief is that love is chaos. Okay. So love is the peaks and the valleys, the highs and the lows. She thinks that this, that there's something to the monotony of this subtle tone that is elevating humanity to a higher self That she doesn't want any part of. She wants to play in the mud and the muck and all this kind of stuff. And in this scenario, she loves me. So she puts me through three trials. This is the story of the three trials that she puts me through. She takes me to the cabin, uh, to a cabin in the woods, and dresses in a very plain, maybe Amish or Mennonite gown. She cooks, she cleans. And she stays quiet. She does that for a week. Right? One day, after she's cooked and cleaned and fed me and fucked me and I'm asleep, she disappears. And I'm left locked in this cabin. And only that sound that the aliens play is emanating in the house for a week Ooh. straight. So I have to listen to it. And over time, this sound, I begin to realize that the emanating to the higher self is something that can actually only take place in the blink of an eye. That's what an epiphany is, right? The elevation to the higher self is necessarily something that only takes place in spurts and fits, not in a sustained tone. So the third thing she does is she comes back, right? The sound is still playing. She enters the cabin, and she is wearing the skin of one of these dead aliens over her, right? And wow. she ties me to the bed and takes me through like insane high heel cock and ball torture, SM sex for as long as I can take. It's also a big, uh, she does a lot of shaming, a lot of edging, right? So I can get close, but I can never quite get there. And she does this for an entire night until I'm, passed out for an entire day. And when I wake up, I decide, uh, fuck the aliens. I'm going with chaos. Wow. You know, and that
1: had a beautiful musicality to it in at the at the tonal sentence level as a total architectural structure to it. Everything about that, I thought that was fabulous. I loved the skin of, of the dead alien. I, I think that's a beautiful um, kind of myth of our time, actually.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, oh, the dead alien?
1: Well, the whole thing, the whole response. Yeah. I, mean, I think we could package that up as, you know, from the premise to your delivery on that as a kind of contemporary fairy tale that does have some of the mythic import that we're seeking of from yeah. today and,
0: and not finding off enough. I'm going to write it as a short story because I wanted a lot of my writer friends are starting to have success cracking some, some good markets. I'm going to write that one out and it's going to half the story, a a solid thousand words of it is going to be cock and ball torture. So we'll see how that goes,
1: but. Okay. Well, you, you certainly, you never pull any punches. I always can count on that. I I really thought that was terrific.
0: Mm. Thank you. So do you have a tool and a tip for us today?
1: I do. And the tool, um, you know, we we've, think about uh, synchronicities and you and I are both really into that. And I think our listeners are too. Uh, and that embraces larger things of deja vu and the experiment with time that J.W. Dunn talks about these weird sort of psychic glitches. I'm just going to call them strange harmonics. And I think that the idea, first of all, is to be very, very alert to them. Um, I was on the phone with my friend Lisa, and she was talking about uh, her father, who is uh, dead now, but that his totem emblem was a shovel because he really valued hard work. Well, right at that exact moment, I was looking out my window at my front yard, and I was looking at this dead juniper bush that I really needed to dig out. I ended up taking my little handheld chainsaw and and disposing of it that way. But at that exact moment, I was thinking of the shovel. And I remember I, I mentioned I, I think a reference to that in the last episode, but in Gary Snyder's line about the thing Americans are most afraid of is hard work, but it happened with just perfect congruence. And then we'd been talking about tapers, the South American pig-like animal, and I found myself in a that in you know, a later evening. Watching 2001 A Space Odyssey again. And I, there are a lot of reasons to watch that movie again. Kubrick's a great filmmaker. Certainly the opening segments of it are just, but I'd forgotten about the tapers, or so I thought. Of course, I hadn't forgotten about them. You know, the tapers are absolutely essential to the early, you know, primitive man, ancient human, you know, when they find the monolith and discover how that bones can be wielded like weapons. But here's the thing. In exactly that moment, and this is where I wonder about this, do we access memories or do they access us? Because I heard in my head a voice, an accented, uh, as in European accented, female voice, sexy. And I realized, ah, that's the chick from a movie called Deadlier Than the Male. One of my favorite 60s movie. It's kind of a knockoff James Bond movie. Bulldog Drummond is the character. It's beautiful. And Elkie Summer, who's just incredibly hot, is that number one female villain. It's just beautiful. The colors are great. Everything's. But I heard this woman say a man's name, Mr. Bridge North. And he is a oil executive that the two female uh, villains kill. Well, lo and behold, I'm watching 2001 and he's one of the minor characters, that same British actor. Now there's no way I would, I mean, it's too obscure. The tapers are obvious, but Mr. Bridge North, no. So Uh I question whether or not we are accessing memories or they're accessing us. But then I wrote to you that I mentioned uh, the, in an earlier episode an anecdote about a professor of mine and the question of whether or not i remembered him because of distinctive characteristics or because of the story about his one of his wives committing suicide by drinking bleach and we talked right. about that yeah well yeah. as it turned out i got curious about him and i found out actually I and I hadn't. I don't know if I had known this or not. He was a really quite a heavyweight scholar uh, in English lit, but also in quantum physics. I don't remember if I. It, I wasn't. Sure, but maybe see, we don't know what we remember. But he died. He was born in 1939, so he's all he's been alive this whole time. He died on the day that that we talked about it in the episode. Now that's. So that to me is more than a a synchronicity. I call these strange harmonics, but my tool is this. When these things happened, don't just journal them and write them down. That's helpful. Of course. I certainly recommend that. And I know you do, but do what you often do too is draw or visualize and I'm talking about collaging these strange harmonics and having some visual reference because another one happened to me and I couldn't decide which came first. Did I think of the original Aquaman character in the DC comics of the past? Or did I think first of orange-flavored Hostess Cupcakes? I don't know. They're obviously trivial in a sense, but I don't think anything is trivial. I think that it somehow that connection is a deeply encoded structure of memory that is carrying a lot of fright and hidden noise for me. For me. But I did a little collage of the original sort of Aquaman character, very different than how he's presented in, in the current movie series franchise. But up against a package of hostess or an orange hostess cupcake and when i collage that when i really made that something that i have as an image that i can print out a whole lot of other associations started to fall into place and i think that visualizing Actually physically making a drawing, a painting, a collage, a montage photograph, or a collage physically is a tremendous way to gain access to some of our deep private grammars that otherwise might seem too trivial for us to investigate. So that's my tool. Nothing is trivial in that way. An orange hostess cupcake, Aquaman, yeah that just sounds like memories of childhood or whatever but maybe there's a real highway or nerve channel that is being supported by those
0: emblems this just broke the whole thing open for me and i'm going to relate it to a monster from uh uh gene Wolfe's book the sword of the lictor which I finished reading about three weeks ago. Now, in the Sword of the Lictor, there's an alien creature that roams the landscape called the Alzabo. The Alzabo is a bear-like monster who eats people. And after eating people, takes on their memories and their voice so that it can speak like that there's a very creepy scene where Severian the torturer hero is in a cabin with a with a widow whose uh, husband had gone out hunting the Alzabo and there's a knock at the door and she hears her husband's voice and then uh, her daughter her young daughter who had run after the husband she then hears the daughter coming through the Alzabo as well and so i'm thinking of this idea of the Alzabo and what you're saying and This just clicked for me. So we have synchronicity. And if you think of synchronicity as a being that arranges moments in time to attempt to speak, right? Now, here's the thing. Memory. Saying that memory doesn't necessarily exist as we think it does, as a store or a cache of things that have happened does not mean that the past doesn't exist or that all of our memories are fake. But what it does suggest is that this monster, this Alzabo, the synchronicity creature, that's the thing that's doing the remembering, if anything. And it's giving it to us in our husband or our daughter's voice so that we can move around in ways that it wants and thinking of it that way, all of a sudden it's like, there's no memory. There's only Elzabos.
1: <laughs> well, that is just a lovely, lovely way of thinking of things. I, I think it's beautiful to think of synchronicity as some kind of entity, creature, monster. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you phrase that as lyrically but also just as very straightforwardly as you've just done you can see how that ties in with the great world mythologies and a lot of these supposedly remote tribal cultures where this is exactly the kind of way that they're thinking of things Mm -hmm. this is what animist Mm -hmm. magic starts to really look like if you have an atlantean framework to it you know it's different than atlantean thinking The Atlanteans are on, you know, have a whole other spectrum of thought going on, but that's how they might approach the animus, rather than just assigning that to the swamp. And this is kind of a a complete uh, sort of, well, the way you were describing, possibly the way we could look at the Buddhist Hindu point of view is kind of purely Mm -hmm. mystical and not Mm -hmm. without any mechanics there's no there's no physics to the metaphysics it's purely mystical you're engaging with the possibility of there being some discoverable uh mechanics dramatics dynamics if we could but understand and see the creature Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i think that's Mm -hmm. a beautiful
0: riff i love Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. i love that well, I'm glad. I'm really glad. I, um, I, uh, yeah, I don't remember anything. I just, it's whatever the Alzabo gives to me at that moment. And you can think about it in brass tax term. Where did you put your keys? Well, you need your keys to get to from point A to point B to do a thing that is a small part in a small drama of a small life. That's part of a small civilization in a slightly bigger state in a bigger country, like over time. And you're like, Whoa, yeah, I, (laughs) Well, that isn't that really. And journaling, right? Right. Journaling is the only way to quote unquote fight the monster, right? To leave messages for yourself. You're, you're the eternal uh, amnesiac basically. Right. Like, so that's why journaling is so good because you are, oh, but you're journaling things that you remember recently. All right, I'll stop so I don't freak myself out. But, well, there's a good analogy
1: that you should check out. It's one of the most famous of the original Johnny Quest episodes. Uh, they're summoned to this island where a friend of Dr. Quest has been experimenting with radical alternative forms of energy and has created this invisible monster. That's the name of the episode, right? Mm -hmm. And it can destroy everything. You just see it, and it moves to the jungle and destroys this village. And so the quest party arrives, and they go up in their jetpacks. And the way they make it visible is they drop paint on it, and it appears and it's i remember being quite scary to see as a kid you look at it now and you think oh that's a giant penis which is kind (laughs) of on top of everything (laughs) but we're talking about giving shape through journaling through visualization trying to give Mm -hmm. shape to the monster Mm -hmm. and i think Mm -hmm. and and you and i of course use the term monster and, and usually kind of very respectful ways, you know,
0: it's it right. sort of good. It's say. the same, it's the same root as to demonstrate. Yeah. Right. That's, that's what a monster is. Basically it's, it's something that is demonstrating something that would, and also all the connotations of the word too. We're not throwing out the zombies and werewolves and things like that too. Like oh, monsters yeah. are also scary, but they're, they're very specific etymologically. It's very close to, to demonstrating, right?
1: And they come out of the swamp and the badlands and the mist, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, no, that beautifully that that ties it all together. And I, I this uh, the the tip in its in you know I try to keep these really practical. I think this is a nice harmonic with that because it's about reappreciating the ordinary and. You know, a house fly can be pretty monstrous. I was out of my porch the other day, and there was just one that looked like, you know, they some of them really look like military issue. They're just so intense looking. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, to my surprise, I slammed my hand. I got it. I got it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's mm-hmm. no way it could withstand the force, the weight, the intensity. And yet it did. It flew mm-hmm. off. And I thought. Again, they insects will always surprise, and I think there's a lot of amazing ordinary things around us. I, I also mm-hmm. shortly after that, I was I I just did a laundry and was remaking the bed, and I thought the genius of contour sheets, you know, the genius of that. I mean, that just mm-hmm. is brilliant. So. The best way that I can think of that's really simple to reappreciate the ordinary, or my tip for this week anyway, is to repurpose some tool or toy. We all have a lot of those lying around. I suggest you've got quite a few, you know, a lot of things. Repurpose it as some kind of musical instrument. And you will get another perspective that really connects with our tool of the week, too. So it's a very simple, practical thing. It can be just a simple percussion. It doesn't have to be, you know, a, an amazing whistle or melodic instrument. It doesn't have to be, you know, no wind or string instrument necessarily, unless you want it to be. But the moment we intentionally repurpose something as a musical instrument, we have stepped into ancient human consciousness and we are traversing, from the swamp of all the things that we don't know to Atlantean ideas of, of memory palace and that dynamic.
0: Excellent. I'll do that with Gus. Uh, dreams. Dreams. Have, Have you dreamed? Well, I I was really great.
1: Last episode, you got me thinking about my lapse in journaling and dream recording. So I got on the ball this time. And so what I've got is kind of a a series of, of uh, things that came up, but I think it's also a bit of a journey about sleep management and how to approach dream recording. So I went to sleep. I was enormously tired and for whatever reason I seemed to have some kind of sinus problem that just kept me awake. And I thought, well, fuck it, I'm going to wake up. So that's point number one. I think if we have trouble sleeping, I really recommend actually not fighting it, getting out of bed and, and doing something. I think that can only help. That's my strategy. But so I went back and did some work and then I thought I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to really focus on extreme angular shapes and designs and in dimensionalized terms i i looked at my uh a book i have on soviet architecture you know sort of really brutalist sort of very um kind of coming off some of my thinking i guess about heiser city but mm-hmm. i i was going to take those images back to sleep with me well lo and behold total inversion i had Two extremely spherical, circular related dreams. In one, I had inherited this fabulous glass eyeball collection. And as an outsider artist, I was committed to placing them inside uh, jello shot cups mm-hmm. and creating this elaborate private shrine. And then I found myself in a very beautiful pastel transparent city filled with people moving in giant hamster balls Mm -hmm. okay so complete opposite of the angular brutalist architecture straight line sort of thing but then i think those images seemed so emblematic so image-based to me that i might have woken up and i did have a couple of scribbles on a notebook. On them. But then when I went back to sleep, so this is now the, the really the third go-round, I entered a completely social phase of dreaming. And I encountered a couple. And I was getting along really well with the woman. But she seemed too tall for me. And it was odd as if I was supposed to couple off with her, even though her husband was right there. But what no one else seemed to notice was that they didn't look like husband and wife. They looked like twins. It, they looked like, you know, it, it, it was ridiculous. And no one seemed to be sort of noticing that. Then I have encountered two Vietnamese women who were being exploited by husbands who were not present and everyone said, I shouldn't comment on their situation, but they didn't agree either. So another very sort of distinct social situation, you see how different that is from Mm -hmm. the eyeballs Mm -hmm. and the hamster things. And then I ended with this very odd, uh, with that scenario, there was, we were in a shared laundry room of a like an apartment building. And there was this rule that you're not you're not supposed to leave with your staff and go back to your apartment. You're supposed to share and fold together until you're both, until everyone's finished. And I thought that's a very odd sort of and then finally I met this friend who I had apparently known forever. And of course, when I woke up, I had no idea who I was talking about, but he'd recorded a Jose Feliciano song or a a song that Feliciano had made famous. And I kept saying how excited I was about it and how I'd made a point of listening to it under a full moon on my trip back from Idaho. And yet within the dream, the moment I tried to mention the name of the song, which was this, you know, famous institutional sort of song that everybody knew, right? None of us could remember it. It completely vanished like a Borges sort of idea. It just completely slipped away. And I woke up thinking, all of these had a very strange sociology to them that i wasn't in in you know entirely connected with but yet resonated within the dream and i don't think those could have happened earlier in the evening earlier in my sleep i think those were coming out and i think that is one thing i'm i'm going to really be attentive in my journaling is if if the deep intuition is that the later the dream, the more close to waking, the more encoded with the social. Oh, right.
0: interesting. Even interesting. if
1: they're bizarre. But when you think about I mean, there is a kind of logic to it. We've taken you off in these weird hallucinatory journeys and beautiful things. And now you're waking up. So the monster is helping with this and and giving a little bit more of a social tinge to the dreaming. So that's just a
0: thought. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, I had a dream. Tell us. That Rios and I were on vacation. We order pizza. And a taxi shows up. Apparently I had reserved some kind of boat tour. But I have to borrow Rios's money to do so. So then this taxi thing... Driven by a cute lesbian woman, drives us through a junkyard mousetrap to pick up the pizza. Big, towering stacks of crushed cars and uh, sort of these rickety ramps. And she's going off the ramps, and we're having a fun time. A guy comes to our window and warns us that the driver that the that the driver, the lesbian, will have sex with whoever. So Rios scoots away from me and closer to the lesbian. Uh, After that, unfortunately, the women disappear and I'm in a huge continental hotel and I'm looking for her and also Gus. I come upon a table of comedians who are hard at work crafting jokes and I try to strike up a conversation, but they're busy. Uh, So I say no worries. I go to the bar And then I remember that I'm supposed to be looking for Gus. And so I begin running through the hotel naked. Then uh, Rios returns and I'm on a terrace and Gus has climbed a waist high embankment and slipped under a black iron gate into a koi pond near a bunch of diners. I fish him out and see Rios and the woman approach me in winter coats. And it's summer right now walking down a sloped path towards me. We leave and I'm mildly upset, but she tells me, don't worry. I just have to forget an awful movie called Interzone from the 90s and believe her when she says that the two of them were just talking. I choose to believe her and wake up.
1: <laughs> That's fantastic. That's beautifully rendered. Was that easy to record with that level of detail? How did you do that? Did you record it oh. did you write it?
0: Yeah. Uh I I I'll show you here. Okay. I wrote it in my in my notes um when I woke up. It's I was working through a lot of uh typos and half sentences here because I woke up and the dream seemed so important that I immediately sort of, you know, grasped around under my bed for my phone. I keep it usually just underneath the bed. Okay. Um and uh yeah, so that's that's where mine is apparently some kind of uh i don't know desire for rios to meet some lesbians i guess <laughs>
1: oh look, no i mean of course you're just joking about that i mean they, they never have that simple uh, an interpretation yeah. to mm-hmm. but i think that what you've illustrated is the effort that it takes to record dreams uh, when they unfold with the ceremonious sort of narrative complexity that we've talked about my my earlier theory was that there is either this very emblematic sort of image driven like the, the collection of glass eyeballs which is kind mm-hmm. of easily said or you get an unfolding ceremoniously complex story involving characters in many different situations and that that's the major spectrum of what's going on and really then that determines the nature of memory and how we're able to record dreams at all but if people really do make an effort to record dreams it it is really worth it because you've given yourself something quite marvelous too it's a very strange kind of collage mirror you know and Mm -hmm. that's become Mm -hmm. You can't do that every night. You can't do that. You know, there's there's a stamina there's all sorts of factors involved. But I really support the effort to do that because I think that that's a great set of clues for you. Uh I think it was very interesting to listen to. I I love int- listening to uh, or or reading well-recorded dreams i think the notion Mm -hmm. that people don't connect with that is wrong because most of the time it's too vague and there's not enough specifics it's the vague,
0: yeah exactly it's the vagueness by the way i do think that your dreams all uh do relate to Heiser city in a way i see a direct connection between the eyeballs and the shot glasses and perhaps the way that you viewed the city right uh sort of placing i mean it's you know taking an eye and attempting to create some sort of um art piece out of fitting it into a glass that is too small for it and then the uh the city with people moving around in hamster balls that sort of social distance right right um, the roundness is obviously in direct opposition to the sharp brutal brutalist rather angularity yes. of the city but uh the kind of distance from from people, right, I think energetically makes sense with the city. So I was seeing a lot of that uh, kind of juxtaposition, you know, but also a kind of harmony
1: as well. Yes. Yes. Well said. I think it's both. I think it's both simultaneously, and that's very mysterious in itself. And it was just a year ago at this time. Yeah, and the weather change, and I'm feeling physically very much like I, I was then. I'm feeling sort right. of transitional. So there are reasons why the the Heiser visit is coming back in mind. But I think you're absolutely right, and I think it 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 kind of explains or performs the 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 movement between uh, memory palace and swamp in in this kind of strange social milieu of of tent city kind of not not fully formed you know not understanding the rules entirely not getting things quite right but there being this social framework and that's of course Mm -hmm. exactly what was weirdly missing in in -hmm. the city when Mm -hmm. you visit it you know um because only six people are allowed there at any given time there's no there's no pretense of dwellings or you know, mm-hmm. fake houses or anything it's far right. more abstract
0: than that so i think that's well said well said cool awesome well i think that'll do it for today um great episode i'm hyped now uh, i have to try yeah, to go to bed because always it's always the uh it's always the challenge after doing these episodes to try to go to bed and then my my kids end up with a. uh you know, a message on the board tomorrow that says, uh, do you have memories or do memories have you? And I say, <laughs> Mr. Osborne, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> well, you
1: know, I, I, I'm i glad it does, you know, permeate your life. I I can, mm-hmm. I can find it hard to unwind too. And I, I'm a little bit earlier in the evening still. So I've got sort of, you know, a little bit more time mm-hmm. to unwind. But I hear you. I hear you. Mm-hmm. It's kind of wound up though.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I'm stoked on it. But uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Take
1: care.